So welcome to the History of the Heavyweight Championship of the World, a podcast from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. In this series, I will take a look at one year in the sport's history. I will cover all the heavyweight championship fights, the stories, characters, outrageous acts, fairy tales, knockouts, controversies, inventions, and one or two lies. Well, certainly the truth being stretched. In short, all the details that matter. I start in 1960 with men that changed the sport forever. This will be no contest. This will be a total annihilation. Well, let, let him do the talking. He does enough for both of us. I would like to announce my retirement from boxing. Oh, well, I've been up and down a number of times. It's all here. Every fighter and fight that matters. Welcome to 1965. In 1965, the rematch between Muhammad Ali, as he was known by then, and Sonny Liston took place in a small town called Lewiston in the tiny American state of Maine. There was an ice hockey arena that held 6,000, two hotels and about 40,000 bemused citizens. The original rematch venue was in Boston in November of 1964, but that collapsed when Ali had a hernia operation. The delay was not good for Liston. His age and decline in speed was starting to be a real factor. He was meant to be 32, but many considered him 5, 6 or even 10 years older. It's possible he never knew for sure. In training, Liston was suffering, slow, predictable and easy to hit. At one particular press junket to his training camp, it was rumoured that a sparring partner had been paid $100 to take a dive. The ruse was thin, the charade so easy to see. And Liston was even more difficult to penetrate at the meetings with the press. Morose, sad, silent, hard to reach. He seemed permanently grim. It never bothered Reg Guttridge, the old school hack. Reg always had a soft spot for Liston. They had stayed up late many times and on one occasion, Reg had won a bet when he plunged a steak knife into his leg. Reg had lost part of the leg in the Second World War. Liston was impressed and made Reg repeat the trick many times. Reg swears that he had to go and get the wooden leg fixed because it had so many holes in it. It's a nice towel, probably true. Anyway, in Lewiston, before the rematch, Reg came to Liston's defence. I've been around fighters long enough not to expect gentility. I agree with Reg. Plus, few writers had been even remotely kind to Liston over the years. Inside the Ali camp, there were signs that the kid had grown. He was a man now, everybody seemed to insist. Ali was 23. Angela Dundee, his trainer, gathered the press one night to warn them against gossip or complacency. Nobody has to tell us that Liston's going to be tough. He's a man that's desperate. He certainly was. The press voted for Ali. They still called him Clay, by the way. There were some, a few hopeful men with mixed agendas, who went for Liston. Murray Robinson, writing in the New York Journal American, was still not impressed with Ali. He was not, it has to be said, alone. Here's Robinson. He fights scared, which may be a good thing from his point of view, but scarcely a high recommendation. I don't think that Clay has the bottom to be a first-class fighter. Now, that's an accusation, because bottom, let's be clear, is code for heart. Ali, in short, lacked courage. And Red Smith, the hugely popular columnist, had his say on the new champion. He is not an enormously stable character. In adversity, he might come unstrung like a frustrated child. There we go again, no heart. And even the brown bomber, Joe Louis, one of the greatest heavyweight champions in history, had his say. His judgment was harsh. Louis had defended his title against a lot of mediocre men. 
a list of fighters called the Bum of the Month Club. Louis was savage on Ali before the rematch. He can't punch, he can't hurt you, and I don't think he takes a good punch. He's lucky there are no good fighters around. That's what Louis said. Man, between envy and prejudice, it was hard to find respect. And then there was the black Muslim question. There was an ugly rumour that Ali would be assassinated before or during the fight. There was real fear and loathing in that small town in February and March of 1965. Make no mistake... The threats were treated very seriously and there were a lot of Nation of Islam security personnel at every function in the weeks and days before the first bell. It was not a nice place to be. It felt like a siege. And he's going fast out of Africa with every ounce of strength and breath. His cries give us liberty or give us death. The whole black world has arised on you to see what the so-called Negro is going to do. At the weigh-in for the fight on the morning of the fight, about 500 watched and most seemed to boo Ali. Liston had been booed, overlooked, rejected, hounded by the police, arrested, incarcerated, abused for his connections to organised crime and suddenly the old man of the heavyweight division was the crowd's favourite. A small crowd, but they were there to cheer him. The hate was real, very real and scary during fight week. According to Jimmy Breslin, a giant of the sports writing caper in America, there was another unfortunate side effect to the growing presence and influence of Ali's Nation of Islam advisers and friends. Breslin longed for the return of the mob, the racket boys, the men in fedora hats with guns in shoulder holsters called Frankie Two Fingers and Fat Tony. As Breslin said, they're no good, of course, but at least you can sit down and have a drink with the old gangsters before a heavyweight championship fight. What a dream it was to cover fights in the 60s. Pure lunacy. On fight night, only 2,434 people paid to watch at the venue. That wasn't the biggest shock. The biggest shock was that the bookies had installed Sonny Liston as the betting favourite. Liston came to the ring surrounded by four policemen. Ali had two policemen plus six members of the Nation of Islam. The fight never really started before it ended and the debate about how it ended has never stopped. Ali certainly delivered stories. After just one minute and 44 seconds of the opening round, a fast Ali right hand dropped Liston. He went down slow and tumbled onto his back. Ali stood there wide-eyed in shock, hollering at Liston to get up. Get up, sucker! Get up, bum! Liston squirmed, started to shift position, got to a knee, fell back again, arms stretched above his head. The referee was 51-year-old Jersey Joe Walcott, a former world champion and not one of the seasoned veteran refs. He never took up a count. He was trying to push Ali to a neutral corner and looked like a man in shock himself. After 10 seconds, Liston was on his knees. After 17 seconds, Liston was up. Walcott had still not started to count. Walcott then spent five more seconds wiping Liston's gloves. There was chaos at ringside, people pointing and shouting. It was bedlam in the ring. Meanwhile, with Liston back on his feet, Walcott went to the edge of the ring and was told by Nat Fleischer, the editor of Ring magazine, he's out, Joe, meaning that Liston had failed to beat the count. The fight was over. An old journalist at ringside had done the referee's job. At the same time, Liston could not defend himself and Ali went right back to work, a vicious Ali. The one many people chose to ignore. Ali threw a big left hook. 
Liston ducked under it, and then Ali threw four or more really nasty punches before Walcott, regaining his stunned senses, got between them and declared the fight over after two minutes and 15 seconds of the opening round. The crowd cried fix. They were entitled to their opinion. The problem was the punch, often called the phantom punch. It was fast, sure, but it did look light. Me, I think it was perfect. Neither boxer had connected up until the second it landed. Ali had tried it a couple of times. He was looking for it, as they say in boxing. And in the aftermath, there were many who recalled him practicing it in the gym and ring during sparring sessions. He meant it, trust me. Liston complained that he couldn't pick up the count and said that he could have beaten the count of 10. I don't think so. He tumbles back over at about the 10 second mark. Liston also admitted that he was hurt by the punch. Few were interested in Liston's reflections. Frank Butler, writing in the News of the World, had another idea about Liston's collapse. I say he couldn't get up because his legs had gone. Dry rot had set in on a man well over 40 who only admits to 32. That's what Big Frank said. At ringside, the heavyweight contender George Chevallo was not happy and dismissed Liston's flopping about on the canvas. His eyes were the eyes of a man faking. Sweet Chevallo was fearless in praise and condemnation. He climbed in the ring and started pushing people and hollering. On the BBC, live at 3.30 in the morning, Harry Carpenter was in a right state. Boxing has been set back a good many years by what we have seen here tonight. That's what Harry said. Terry Downs, the former middleweight champion of the world, was working as Carpenter's colour man and claimed he hits his daughter harder and she never goes down. But new world light heavyweight champion Jose Torres came to Ali's defence. It was a perfect shot. It happens once in a million years. It wasn't fake. You'd have to be a fighter to know it. The heavyweight carnival packed away its ring, sent off its men and moved out of town. Lars Patterson's a sister. I done knocked that out of my mind. He ain't nothing but a chump. If he go back, let him go back and fight Sonny Liston. If he can last two rounds again, if he can last, if he can answer the bell for the second time with Liston, then he might deserve a shot at me. I'm the king. Uh, Floyd thinks he can beat you. Floyd dreamed he beat me. He'd apologize. <laughs> He'd rather run through hell in a gasoline spoke coat. <laughs> I can't be beat. Ali was back defending his heavyweight championship in November when he agreed to meet Floyd Patterson in Las Vegas. Patterson had last been the champion in 1962. The backdrop to the fight was even nastier in some ways than the build-up to the Liston rematch. Liston had been reluctant to criticise or make any type of political headway over Ali's conversion and his association with the Nation of Islam. Patterson had no such qualms. I'm a Catholic and I'm fighting Clay as a patriotic duty. I am on a crusade to reclaim the title from the black Muslims. Ali had, so Patterson claimed, whispered to him at an early conference to promote the fight that he would be saying a lot of mean things and that it was all about the pair of them making big bucks. He had questioned Patterson's skin colour, called him Uncle Tom at every meeting. It was a pattern of debatable abuse that Ali repeated a few years later with Joe Frazier. Ali had called Patterson the great black-white hope. It was a classic Ali quip, both funny and just wrong. The fight was unpleasant. George Whiting of the London Evening Standard declared to his avid readers, let's not call this a fight. It was more a public humiliation. 
Alia toyed with and taunted Patterson throughout the fight before it was mercifully called off in the 12th of the 15 rounds. Patterson had been hindered by a damaged back from about round two and was a sitting and willing target for Ali's violence that night in Las Vegas. In some ways, the beating restored Patterson's credentials. The two first-round knockout defeats in championship fights to Sonny Liston had harmed him. The massacre proved his bravery, and often in boxing, that is crucial to getting the respect to the public. In June, Ali had filed for divorce from Sonji. It had been less than a year since he had met her. They were finally divorced in January 1966. Sonji had asked too many questions and had refused to convert. Meanwhile, in what seemed like a parallel heavyweight world, there were two fights for the WBA version of the title in 1965. The WBA, a sanctioning body created in 1962, had withdrawn recognition of Ali when he made it clear he would give Liston a rematch. In March, a good heavyweight called Ernie Terrell beat another very good fighter called Eddie Machen over 15 rounds on points to win the WBA championship. It was a quality fight between two leading contenders, but it was not Ali. There was a plan for Terrell to fight Patterson, but that collapsed when Patterson agreed terms for the Ali fight. In February at Madison Square Garden in New York City, Patterson had beaten George Chevallo over 12 rounds on points. The Ring magazine declared that fight their fight of the year for 1965. So, with Patterson busy getting slaughtered by Ali, it was decided that Chevallo should fight Terrell. They met in Chevallo's backyard, the Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, and Terrell won on points after 15 gruelling rounds. Chevallo had 33 wins, 9 defeats and 2 draws in fights going in with Terrell. Terrell had lost 4 times. Chevallo was a hard man. He was destined to fall short in big fights. But Iron Jawed George proved he was one of boxing's toughest ever heavyweights. In Philadelphia, Joe Frazier had his first professional fight in August of 1965. He won in 102 seconds and left the venue with just $125 in his pocket. Frazier never had a big deal. At Christmas the year before, just after winning the gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics, Joe and his young family had received and needed care packages. Before the end of 1965, Frazier would have three more fights, all in Philadelphia and all ending very early. In one fight, his opponent had sneakers on. Frazier was well and truly under the radar. In December, Frazier got his deal. A group called Cloverleaf agreed terms to ease his financial situation. He could now concentrate on fighting. Frazier was 21 at the end of 1965. Ali was 23. Their paths would soon cross. So, 1965 ended with two heavyweight world champions, but only one of them had any credibility. The two Terrell WBA title fights were not bad, They were just not considered important at the time. Ali was the champion of the world. The man the papers covered, love or hate, it made no difference. He was the man. Watch now. Down he goes for the count of ten. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. 
Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. The 60s was a golden decade for sports writing. And here are some of the men that made it special. The writing geniuses at ringside for some of the greatest fights ever. Before we leave the middle of the decade, more of the genius of the London Evening Standards, George Whiting. It's 1965, and as usual, Whiting is ringside for Ali against Liston 2. He was not happy, not impressed, and that meant he could have some fun with his words. It was a shambling apology for a world championship fight, which occupied our feverish attention for precisely one minute an all-time record in the steamy history of the fight trade. So Clay gets cheered, does he blazes, within seconds of the realisation that their squatted little schmozzle was over, the boiling cauldron of indignant shirt-sleeved spectators exploded into wrathful protests. Fix! 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 they yelled in angry chorus as echelons of blue-shirted cops barred their way to the ropes. You cheating robbers, you lousy bums, give us our money back. Sweet George was caught up in the feeling that something wrong, something bad had happened on that May night. Liston was his main target. If the supposedly impregnable Liston is now no tougher than that the impact of one short right-hander causes the sap to run down his oak-like brown legs, then he has little right to be known as a fighting man. Let's not blame the prancing, twinkled-toed clay for the piffling farce. He told us he was going to destroy Big Bear Liston in one minute, 49 seconds. He was just 49 seconds out. That's whiting with the harshest of facts. And that line about sap running down Liston's oak-like legs is an image to conjure with. Whiting left ringside as disgruntled, unhappy and unconvinced as any of the experts and so-called experts in attendance. Of all the 4,280 affronted buffs who paid $201,000 to watch this smelly Lewiston wake, probably only referee Walcott had a kind word to say for the one-minute maul. That punch was a beauty, right on the button said Jersey Joe. Well, Mr Walcott was nearer the kerfuffle than I was, and we must respect his experienced opinion. Nevertheless, I still think those customers were right when they yelled that Cassius Clay versus Sonny Liston was a washout for want of a stronger word. This is lively copy, copy written overnight for the British public, and obviously Whiting got the time of the actual stoppage wrong, but in all fairness, it was a truly chaotic ending. 
It was before the Ali and Liston rematch that Bucky Yardoon of the Boston Traveller spoke to former unbeaten world heavyweight champion Rocky Marciano for his thoughts on the fight and the fight game in 1965. They were not good. Here's the rock. Boxing is dead. Imagine a world heavyweight title fight in front of 4,600. I don't care who sees what on TV. Nobody can make a living at boxing. Not fighters, promoters, managers, nobody. TV hasn't helped. It's killed the game. Thanks for that, Rock. Peter Wilson of the Daily Mirror was not happy with the small town location of the fight. There was probably a danger that he would not be able to find a bar open long enough to suit his timings and his taste. Here's Wilson on Lewiston, Maine. The truth is that big fights belong in big cities, not tucked away in rural solitude. A few months later, Ali was defending his title again, this time in Las Vegas, and the man in the opposite corner was Floyd Patterson. So it was a man knocked out twice in one round by Liston, and Ali had then knocked out Liston in one round. Hmm. Nobody was expecting much of a fight, but that never got in the way of quality writing. George Whiting was there. It was a public humiliation, he wrote at the top of his report. And he was not finished with that theme. First, here's Whiting on the weigh-in. Inside, the Clay Clan took up positions in the wings of the weigh-in stage. Mute, but of uncomfortable menace. But there were no incidents, unless you count Clay keeping his mouth shut as an incident. And when it was over, he was ruthless in his appraisal. You could also call it slightly sickening. Not until two minutes and 18 seconds of the 12th round had passed were we relieved of the torture session by two raised hands from referee Harry Krause. Still trying to raise a defiant fist at the man who had so thoroughly outclassed him in every department of what we like to call a sport, Patterson slumped backward into the slate-coloured ropes while they brought his wife into the ring for tear-laden embraces. Five minutes later, Patterson was still in the punishment pit. Writers had been critical of Liston, but Patterson had their respect and possibly their sympathy. Here's Whiting on Patterson's exit that night. He had to be lifted onto his stall by anxious seconds, and now... With the 7,000 crowd tendering cheers of sympathy, the defeated but not discredited Patterson managed a pathetic wave of an impotent fist as a doctor, blue-shirted security men and other Samaritans raised him gently over the ropes and away to the dressing room. Whiting was also quick to caution and remind people that Patterson had very little chance in the fight. It's possible to be both brave and praised in the ring in a mismatch. And Whiting knew that, and knew that Ali, who was still clay in the British papers at the time, was just doing what Ali had said he would. That gabby gladiator had told us all that he would pillory Patterson, humiliate him, dismiss him when the thrashing was complete. Well, Clay did all those things, cockily confident, supremely indifferent to his opponent's pathetic attempts to dodge duck and even counter. No mercy came from Clay, neither during nor after this Las Vegas travesty. A travesty, that's perfect. The Liston fight was bad for business. The Patterson beating did not help. Whiting and the other fight reporters, publicists, 
former champions and out-and-out hacks at ringside had so many great nights to enjoy, even if the fights were a travesty. If you're enjoying this tour through the best of boxing history, you can find more transcripts, archive videos, historical images in the boxing section of the Yahoo UK sports site. That's uk.sports.yahoo.com slash boxing. The history of the heavyweight championship is written and recorded by me, Steve Bunce, produced by Yahoo UK, with editing and sound design by Lolita Laguna. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.